Father, thank you for this day that you've granted to us, and I pray that you'd open our minds and our hearts as we study this topic of doctrine and baptism. I pray that you give us insight into what it's saying, what your word says, and we just thank you for such a gorgeous morning to be in your house. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Now that Ruth's here, we can start. Um, yeah, it, well, I don't know. It's it probably better off. As long as you guys can see. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. They're all set up. Okay, let's look at the ordinances of the church. Um, depending on what tradition you're from, um, you're going to have two or more ordinances. What are ordinances? Or sometimes they're called sacraments. Sacrament. Ever hear of sacraments? Mm -hmm. Term sacrament? Mm -hmm. All right. How many sacraments does Catholicism have? Any Catholics in here? Seven. Seven. If you ask me what they are, I probably can't name them all. I think there's, let's see, doctrine of communion, baptism, uh, penance, uh, holy orders, last rites, marriage, and there's one other one. Confession. Seven. All right. Seven. And what's confusing about sacraments is that depending on what tradition you're from, a sacrament is either a memorial or a means of grace. What do we mean by a means of grace? In Catholicism, and, and I'll use Catholicism because that's probably the best example to, to talk about this. In Catholicism, the sacrament or the ordinance, we call them ordinances, the sacrament, is a means of grace in the sense that when you participate in the ordinance, you are having grace conferred to you. Follow? By just merely participating. So if you go to a Catholic church and you as a pagan Baptist take communion in a Catholic church, in their theology, grace is being conferred to you whether you believe in communion or not, or whether you even believe in God or not. Grace is being conferred. By the very fact that you're in that, or doing that ordinance, whether you're conscious of it, whether you know what's going on, whether you have even an inkling of what it is, there's still grace being conferred. Follow? So like, for example, in, in, in Catholicism, when a baby is baptized to remove original sin, that's the belief, by the way, it removes original sin, that baby, it's irrelevant where that baby believes, or it's irrelevant where that, the baby's parents believe. It doesn't, it's not relevant whether they're good Catholics or not. It doesn't, none of that matters. All that matters is that you go through the rite, and that rite in confers through the very act of going through the rite confers grace to you. So in the Catholic Church, every time you go and take Mass, every time you go to confession, every time you do penance, every time you do that, there's a little dab, dab of grace being inferred to you, conferred to you. All right, that's, that's the understanding in Catholicism. Whereas from the scripture, and I believe the Bible's very clear on this, these are not a means of grace, these are merely memorials. All right? So what is a ordinance? What is it? It's a, it's a reminder of some historical event of great spiritual significance. Think of the Passover. Why did God institute the Passover? What was the purpose of that? remember mm -hmm. when the angel passed over. Um, by taking part of the Passover, did you have grace inferred to you in some way? No, it was purely a memorial. It was to remind you of what God had done. All right? To teach the children. Teach the children. And, so, and so when we, in our understanding, and as we look at the text of Scripture, when we partake of communion, what are we doing? Are we getting grace conferred to us? No. We are remembering the Lord's death till he comes. All right, It's something we do, and this is important, it's something we do as a result of grace and mercy, not to obtain grace and mercy. In Catholicism, it's to obtain it. Why do you go to confession? To obtain a little dab of grace. Why do you do communion? To obtain a little dab of grace. And so in Catholicism, you've sort of got this piggy bank of grace that you carry around and every time you participate in one of the sacraments there's a deposit made into this piggy bank 
And as long as you die with some change in the piggy bank, you go to purgatory. And you work off a few million years of your sins, depending on how bad or good you were, before you get into heaven. But in Catholicism, it's a means of grace. It's not because of grace, it's a means to obtain it. That's how they see it. All right? So when we look at the scripture, what two ordinances do we recognize from scripture that fall out of scripture? Communion and Lord's Supper. Supper. Those are the two that fall out. Those are the two main ordinances. Yeah, what did I say? All right, communion and baptism. I had a long night. It's communion and baptism. All right? Yeah, communion and baptism. And here's the other thing, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, but what kind of baptism? Just any? Believer's baptism. Because again, depending on what theological persuasion you're from, baptism has several meanings. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. All right? So those are the two, and those are the two that we officially at Church of the Open Door recognize. We practice these on a regular basis. They're part of our constitution and, and doctrinal statement. All right? So what is the Lord's Supper? Well, if we go back and look at the origin of the Lord's Supper, when did, when did it start? Who started it? Jesus, Jesus did. When? The Last Supper. Now, why did he institute the Lord's Supper? By the way, he did it when? What, was it, what were they doing when he instituted this? Yeah, but what were the disciples and him doing? Celebrating the Passover. All right. And, well, of course, what was the Passover? It was a memorial, was it not? All right. So right in the middle of the Passover, right in the middle of the Seder meal, Christ takes the loaf, the unleavened loaf. Now, why did he use an unleavened loaf? That was what was on the table. Well, there's significance in the Passover from that. Yeah. All right. But why did he use the unleavened loaf to, commem- to constitute the Lord's Supper? Well, that's what was on the table. See, you know, we get, we, we get so much theological stuff around things, and a lot of times it's like, okay, we're going to institute the Lord's Supper. What do we have? Well, we have unleavened bread. Okay, that'll do. All right. Yeah, we get hung up on the symbolism, and we miss the point. All right. So what did he use? He used a piece of Seder bread. It was, there was an unbroken piece of bread that they had there at the Seder meal. And he used that, and he broke a piece off and passed it around, and each disciple broke off a piece. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. There's great symbolism in the breaking off of the peace. And then he passed around a common cup. They had a cup of wine, and he passed around a common cup, and everybody took a sip out of the common cup, and he said, this is the New Testament in my blood. Now, it's very important to understand what Christ is doing right here at the very end of his ministry. Prior to this, as a Jew, where did you go for spiritual leadership and direction? To the temple. And who was in the temple? The priest. He went there. What did Christ say about the entire priestly system? What was the assessment of the entire Judaistic system at that point? What was Christ's assessment of that? Was it reformable? No, it wasn't. No. Christ did not come to reform Judaism. You understand that? At the end of his life, he did not say, well, we got, we got a few things bungled up here in Judaism. We'll, we'll sort them out and we'll go from there. No. You've got get, to gotta get rid of that whole system. That's when he left the temple. Remember when he left the temple, he said, there's not one stone left, left on another so I'll be cast down. He's saying, look, we can't reform this thing. We've got to destroy it and start over again. And, of course, who is the new leadership? The priests? The disciples. What happened in Matthew 23? He really castigated the religious leaders, called them whitewashed tombs, blind leaders of the blind. Very non-PC kind of way to approach things. But he called them what they were, and what was he trying to do? To shatter the people's reliance on the Pharisees and the religious leaders and go to the disciples. 
he's making a break with the old covenant to the new. Not only in terms of leadership, but in terms of the symbology of the Passover. It is now the Lord's Supper. It is no longer the Passover. So as a Christian, should we be celebrating the Passover? No, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. All right? And the symbolism of the Lord's Supper is the bread that is passed around and broken off and the cup of wine. Why did he use wine? That's what was there at the table. All right? Yeah. Yeah. The Eucharist, what, what are the names that we use for the Lord's Supper? Well, you got the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word to give thanks. Eucharisto, to give thanks. All right? We got a Greek scholar in here, so he can tell me if I'm wrong on this. All right? The eulogia comes from the Greek word for blessing. It's a time of blessing. Prosphora comes from the Greek word for offering or communion, which is derived from 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Or in Acts 2, 42, it talks about the breaking of bread, where they had the breaking of bread every day. All right? And what is this? It's a symbol. It is a symbolic event to picture the crucifixion of the Lord. The, the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. That's what it is. It's, it doesn't confer grace. It, you're not going to get any brownie points before God for taking communion. It is a commemoration only. It is a, com a memorial event. Alright? Now when we look at the views on this, I'm giving you a 20,000 foot perspective, then we're going to go look at the text here. When you look at the views, there, there are three major views that sort out of this communion. And one of the things you're going to find, which is interesting here, when it comes to these two ordinances, there's a tremendous number of denominations that are formed over this stuff. In fact, this is really the basis for a lot of denominationalism that you see. How do you, def how do you view the Lord's Supper? How do you view communion? And, and it'll, it'll really... Baptism. Baptism. I'm sorry. Baptism and the Lord's Supper will really send you off into a different persuasion. All right? What's the Catholic view on this? By the way, let me, under, let me help you understand something important here. That is what sent many martyrs to the stake. Right there. Um, don't, don't fall into this stupid idea that this doesn't matter. That it's not important. That, you know, get a life. You go back to 15th century England, and as they were burning the martyrs at the stake, all the martyr had to do was say, I believe that the real body and blood of Christ are in the communion, and they would untie him and let him off the stake. Don't, don't, don't think that this is not an essential point. In Catholicism, they basically cur pronounce a curse of damnation on you if you don't believe this. Now, you might say, well, that, you know, I have a Catholic next to me, and they don't think that. Look, don't go there. You want to go find out what Catholicism believes, you go to the Vatican, you go to the Pope, you go to the edicts of the church, and that's where you find this stuff out. Catholicism says that when you take communion, when that priest comes, comes I don't know if you've ever been to a Catholic church, but when that Catholic priest pronounces the blessing on those elements, that literally they become, in essence, the physical body and physical blood of Christ. Now they may look like bread and they may look like grape juice or wine, but in reality, in essence, they are the physical, literal body and blood of Christ. And every time he does that, Christ steps off his throne and comes down and takes presence in those elements. The priest can take Christ off his throne and bring him down to these elements. And when you partake of these elements, you are partaking of the literal body and blood of Christ. And that's why they go and they have this little spoon underneath there so in case you falls out of your mouth it doesn't hit the ground. Yeah. Yeah. I mean this we sit here and say come on, you know, get a life. Look. I'm telling you, this is this is essential to to Catholicism, this is one of the major tenets of their system. And people, you go back, just read the Fox's Book of Martyrs. You go back and read any of these accounts of many of these martyrs um, under Bloody Mary, reign of 
Queen of Scots and all that, you'll find that what sent many to the stake was they, they did not believe that the physical, literal body and blood of Christ was in the elements. And that's what sent them to the stake. All they had to do was say they believed that and they were let off the stake. This is, this is, a, this is, in, this is essential here. Okay? Now, where do they get that? Where, where do they get that belief? Right. They say, when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, they literally think that he literally meant, this is my body and this is my blood. Now, why would that be a, a bad interpretation at that point? Because he hadn't died yet. He hadn't died yet. He's still there. All right. This is my body and blood, and he's standing there looking at you. Come on. Okay. This is to be understood metaphorically. We understand it metaphorically. Any more than the Seder meal was in essence with, with these things. It's a symbol. It's a symbol. All right? But they believe, literally, that this becomes the body and blood of Christ. I wonder, I mean, this is coming from my precepts. <laughs> so, if you did a word study on this is, if in the original Greek, it would come out, you know, this is as my, you know, instead of... No. No. No, he says this is. This is. That's what they lean on heavily. Is is what it means. Is is what is is. It's not the Clinton form of is. All right. Is means is in this case. All right. Um, But but they they believe this. All right. Um, However, when Christ here's the and here's really what's underneath it. What they say is every time they partake of communion or every time a priest does communion, does mass, it is a re-sacrifice of Christ on the cross, or on, for our sins. It's a re-sacrifice. Now, what's the problem with that? Once. Go to Hebrews chapter 7, 24 through 27. For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. Being sanctified, actually. One offering. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Not multiple times, but once. There is no multiple sacrifice of Christ on uh, every time they do communion. It's a memorial. Okay. Now, there's, a, there's the Lutheran view. Where did Lutheranism come from? Martin Luther came out of Catholicism. So, the, in Lutheranism, they, they, they skirt this issue with something called consubstantiation. The idea of consubstantiation is, okay, we don't believe it literally, physically, in essence, becomes the body and blood of Christ. But there's a, it, it metaphorically, in a very real sense, becomes it. Because since God is everywhere, and God is, therefore, in the elements, in a sense, God is there in the elements. Although they don't literally become the elements, he's still there. It, it's, it's some whiz-bangery to get around. He's not really there, but he is there. All right, and that's the, this is the Lutheran view. Like if you go to a Lutheran church, they would believe in consubstantiation. There is a mystical union, they would say, a mystical union between the blood of Christ and the communion element. All right, not literal connection, but a mystical connection. So it's very important, all right, to them, the elements. And then, of course, there is the view of Protestantism, most Protestants, the bread and wine are merely symbols of the body and blood of Christ. It's symbolic. We take it in a symbolic way. We commemorate the body and blood of Christ in terms of his sacrifice by these elements. All right? So those are the three major views on this. And I, I can't underscore enough this, this idea here, or not the idea, but the, but the reality, that in Catholicism, this is an essential of their faith. You don't believe that, you don't go to heaven. This is important to them. So don't let them say, well, it really doesn't matter. Yes, it does matter to them. All right. Um, what you just said about if you don't believe that, you don't go to heaven if you know, you're a Catholic. Um, or, okay. My question is, earlier when you said whatever, I forget, but then you said, then they go to purgatory. So do some Catholics go to purgatory and others go to heaven? Yeah, yeah. Well, usually as a Catholic, unless you've got a special vision from God, you do not go straight to heaven. Every Catholic, I mean, if you really nail them down the wall and back them into a corner, they'll say, 
look, every, every Catholic spends at least a little bit of time in purgatory. You know, um, very few go directly to heaven. All right? And by the way, just so you understand, I don't want to beat this to death, but purgatory is an essential component of Catholic theology. I listened to one of the Catholic cardinals who is the head of their doctrinal section over there in the Vatican, and he was asked point blank, is purgatory an essential belief? And he said, yes, it is. It's binding upon all Catholics to believe in purgatory. So don't let your Catholic neighbor say it doesn't matter whether they believe it or not because the cardinal and the pope says it is essential. All right. Again, you got to go. If you want to find out what, what systems believe, you got to go to the source. You don't go to people who may be in it. You go to the official statements of the church. And purgatory is the engine which makes all of Catholicism run. It's the engine behind the whole thing. All right. When you look at the Lord's Supper, yeah. So Adam, when all these Catholics die, where do they go? Hell. Okay. I mean, if, if, if they do not believe in salvation alone, Christ alone, faith alone, where does anybody go? Yeah, and I got in trouble many times by saying that's where Mother Teresa's at because I believe that is where she's at because she did not believe in salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. She believed your works were part of that. She believed if you were a good Hindu and you did the best you could and you were sincere in your faith that God would let you into heaven. Now what does that tell you about her understanding of the gospel? It's a defective understanding, is it not? Now, again, I don't know for certain. You know, I don't, I don't have the book or I don't... I told somebody the other day, you know, I don't have a copy of the Book of Life, so I don't know who's in and who's not. All I can say is that, look, what, is the, what does the Bible say? If, anybody, if, if you want to come into heaven, how do you get there? Through who? Jesus Through Christ, by the way of the cross, yep. faith alone. Yep. You don't get there any other way. Now, no. you, could, you, know, you can be muddled on your thinking and be a Christian... But if you believe that your salvation hinges on what you do and when you do it and the rights that you go through, that, that tells me you don't understand the gospel. Alright? Now that's for God to sort out. I'm just saying what the scripture says. Alright? And I know people don't like it when I say something like that. They get, oh, well, how can you judge people? It has nothing to do with me judging anybody. It has to do with what does the scripture say. The Bible says A, they believe B. What am I supposed to assume? You know, and you're not doing them a favor by saying, well, you know, you're sincere, God will let you in, you're okay, kind of thing. You've got to go with what the scripture says. You know, sometimes people don't like that that way. What is the, so what is the symbolism of the Lord's Supper? Well, in the Old Testament, we see some types of it. We see it sort of prefigured to some extent, don't we? We see it in um, the Passover lamb, don't we? There's certainly a prefiguration. I mean, throughout the New Testament, Christ is called the Lamb of God. God. Well, where did they get that imagery? They got it out of the Passover. All right? Um, so what is its purpose? Well, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is, is, I think, threefold. Number one, to look back. Look back to what? What Christ did. Think about his sacrifice for you. And that's why, personally, whenever I take communion... You know, when that, when that bread is passed around, I am focusing on what Christ did for me. He took my place. He paid the penalty for my sin. I'm not trying to think of what's going to happen after church. I'm not listening to the music. I'm trying to focus on what Christ did. It's also to look inward. What does that mean? Exactly. Examine yourself. Yeah. What does it mean to examine yourself? Do you have unconfessed sin? Are you, are you taking this flippantly? Are you, are you not treating this with this, the proper amount of seriousness? See, one of the problems we have in Christianity today, and we've talked about this back when we did theology, doctrine of God many years ago, two years ago now, when we started talking about that, is that we don't see God as holy as he is. So we you know, sort of bop into his presence and we don't think anything of it. There's a seriousness to taking communion. You're commemorating something very important. And you just go blowing into God's presence and, and thinking like there's, you know, taking it not seriously. I mean, you don't, you don't want to be scared 
you know, unduly petrified, but it is a serious thing to take communion. You're to look inwardly. You're, you're to examine yourself. Do you have unconfessed sin? Are there areas of your life that you are just, you know you're in sin, you're not dealing with it? Don't take the communion. It's okay to let, the, let it go by. Now, if, if you are dealing with the communion, if your sin, if you are confessing your sin, if, if you're doing the best you can to ask God to cleanse you and to, to forgive you your sin, partake. But be serious about it. And then it's a look forward. To look forward to what? When we take it with him in his kingdom. We commemorate it in the kingdom. And what are we going to be commemorating then? The death of Christ for us. In the kingdom. Remember he said that to the disciples. You'll no longer eat this with me until we eat it together. Where? In the kingdom. Ruth, you're going to... No, I, my take on that is that the sinner is in danger of judgment in that case. This, this is a serious thing. This is for believers. This is not for unbelievers. By the way, when did Christ institute the Lord's Supper? Before or after Judas left? Yeah. Um, this is not for unbelievers. Now, I, I, can't, I can't go around, I can't, you know, I don't give them a 100-page doctrinal questionnaire to make sure they're a Christian before they're allowed to take communion. But, I, I, you know, you want to tell them, listen, this is for believers. This is for people who have come to faith in Christ. This is a good chance to present the gospel, actually. And to just say, this is for believers only. And if you're a believer, you're welcome to the table. If not, we would, we would urge you not to partake. You know, I... Prioritizing sin. Because you're saying that you know they're really jeopardizing themselves. Well, now they eat and drink unworthily. I this is this is a serious thing. It is for us that, of believers, but if they don't understand, I would still I would still be very uncomfortable making it no. easy no. Right. for unbelievers to partake. I can't again. I can't go and I can't you know, uh, grill everyone partaking if they're really a Christian or not. I can't go there. Um, but I think there's a seriousness to it. We need to take it seriously. This is something for believers. This is not for anybody out there. And that's the difference in Catholicism. Catholicism, it doesn't matter whether you're Catholic or not. As long as you partake, you get some grace conferred to you um, because it's in the working of the work itself. They call it ex operato operare or something like that, some Latin term, which means in the working of the work. By, the, by just taking it, you have grace conferred. So it's a serious thing. Oh, I really like it's yeah. a serious No, it's not, but, but I, think, I think there are certain sins that, that, are, that are more serious than others because of the attitude that you partake in them, you know. I mean, it's equally all sin, equal in God's sight. Well, yeah, there is, but there's varying consequences depending on what sin you do, all right? And I think this is, this is something that you need to be taking seriously. I think for Christians, we need to really take this seriously. We need to really think when we're taking this. And that's why, personally, when I'm partaking communion, I don't like music playing. I don't like the band playing. I don't like any of that. I want, I want to contemplate. I want to stop and I want to think. I want to focus on what I'm doing. That's just me. But I want to focus on that. And I think that's the point we need to, to do. That's and who should right. take it? Believers. Examine yourself yeah. before you, while you're doing this. Yeah. So, so what are the prerequisites for the Lord's Supper? Well, a believer, and no unconfessed sin. What does that mean? You examine yourself and... Now, now, technically, is there going to be some sin somewhere in you that you forgot to confess? Sure, that you didn't even realize. Yeah, you didn't even know about. Yeah. The point is, 
if you know about it, if it's something that the Lord brings to your mind, and that's a good thing. When you're partaking the communion, ask God, you know, is there some part of me that, that I need to deal with? Is there something in me that I need to... That, that's a good thing to do on a regular basis. Examine yourself. Yeah, sin takes many different faces. And um, the, the whole point here is that you take it seriously. That's all. And that, that in this process, you're asking God to reveal to you any area of your life that you need to deal with. And he will. He'll do that. But you take it seriously. Because if you don't take it seriously, if you take it flippantly, if you don't, if you don't see it as a serious thing it is, what might happen? You might die. Wow, that's pretty serious. Well, yeah, it is. Or you're sick. And why do you get that? Well, Paul said that's because... And what happened in the Corinthian church? Well, it become a debacle. What they did when they came together is they would bring their food and they would drink to the point of being drunk. And they would be gluttonous. And, and then they would do communion and they're half drunk and out of their mind and not taking it seriously. And Paul says, you know, God's going to kill some of you for this. You say, well, I didn't know God still did that. Well, yeah, he does. By the way, does God have a right to kill you when you sin? So why are you here? That's right. Take it seriously. And what should be the frequency? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that. I mean, in those days, they had communion every time they met together. Um... I don't think there's any set communion or frequency. I mean, the Bible, if the Bible says you need to take this every time you get together, it would have told us that. But I do think there's a, a thing in which it should be taken regularly. And at Church of the Open Door, we do it the first Sunday of the month. Every first Sunday, we take communion. That's re on a regular basis. All right? Can you take it more often than that? Yes. Yeah. Sure. Now, let me ask a couple of heretical questions before we go on to baptism. Right? You have a small group, you're having a wonderful time in your small group, and somebody suggests that you do communion. Can you do it in your small group? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Why would you say that? You're a body of believers. You don't need the pastor there, do you? Yeah. And as long as you do it, with a proper attitude, the proper seriousness, there's nothing to keep you from doing that. That's what the early church did. Where did the early church meet? In homes. Where did those 3,000 Christians in Jerusalem meet? Well, they didn't have a church of 3,000 there. They met in homes. And what did they do in the homes? Broke bread. There's nothing wrong with that. What if you don't have grape juice? Can you still do it? Yeah? But what if you don't have that? What if you're out of that? Use water, use a Coke, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper. All right. Is the significance in the element? Where's the significance? In the commemorative. Yeah. All right. Now you have to sort that through on your own. All right. But I don't think the, 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 the issue is the... I think, I think Chuck Swindoll said one of the most uh, touching communion service he was ever at was on the beach and they had coke and potato chips or something like that is what they used all right because the the the, the issue and see this is what we do here's our problem we get so hung up on the symbology we get so hung up on the little nitty stuff we forget what we're doing it for we do don't we we do that all of the time we forget the significance why do you do that well that's just always done that Always did that. Tradition. Tradition. And sometimes you, traditions go back so far that we forget why they even started. But we're just still doing it. Look, here's the big thing God wants you to do. Whenever you do something, whenever you commemorate something, whenever you pray, God wants your brain engaged in the process. He doesn't want you just going through it to go through it just because that's what you do. He wants you to be thinking. 
So no, there's no problem with that, I don't think. What is communion? It's a commemoration. All right? Now, I'm not going to go through the text because if I do, we won't get done with baptism. Because you've all been through the text, haven't you? You all know what the process is. And <clears throat> I remember a few years ago, um, we did communion here where we actually passed around a loaf of bread and broke off a piece. You know what happened to most Baptists? They popped a cork. That's not the way you do it. You're not, you're not allowed to do it. You've got to pass the plate around with wafers. Well, now, wait a minute. How did they do it in the early church? How did Christ do it? He did not get a communion tray and break off 12 little pieces. And, and they didn't have the little cups, right? What cup did they have? The common cup. Now, that will really freak out the church. Pass around a common cup down the aisle and have to take a sip. That will really get you going. But what do we do? When we, when we fall into that trap, what are we doing? We're more concerned on the ritual and the right than we are on the significance of the event. God wants you to concern about the significance yeah, of the event. Instead of tradition. Right. Alan, how do we know he didn't mean every meal is communion when he said... Because he said as often as you do this. It's not as often as you eat. As often as you do what? Celebrate this... The, the right, he was instituting the right... Or, or actually, bap, or communion was replacing the Passover... All right? And he said, as often as you do this, well, what does the this refer to? It's not referring to the meal that they just ate. Rather, it's referring to what he just did. There is no set frequency. Now, it just so happened in the early church that they did it every time they met in homes to eat a meal together. They ate common meals, so they would do it then. But there's no set frequency given. It's just as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. All right? So that's communion, the Lord's Supper. It's a serious thing. You take it seriously. You, you commemorate what Christ did. And by the way, there's a penalty if you don't take it seriously. Which could be death. Yep. So yeah, you take it seriously. <clears throat> now let's look at another one, baptism. What does the word baptism mean? Baptizo means to dip, dip or immerse. Mm -hmm. Alright? Now again, and I, I, I know I'm going to you got to listen to the whole presentation I do here before I'm labeled a heretic. All right? Listen to the whole thing. All right? The whole thing. But what we do is we make a big deal out of baptism. And, and a lot of churches make a big deal out of baptism. How big a deal do they make out of baptism? Well, there's certain Baptist churches you go to called Landmark Baptists. Have you ever heard those? Yeah that you have to be baptized by somebody in their church in order for it to be a valid baptism. But in order for your baptism to be valid, the person who baptized you had to be validly baptized by someone who was validly baptized by someone who was validly baptized and you work your all way back, all yourself all the way back to John the Baptist. All right? That's their belief. So if, if I were to walk into a landmark Baptist church, say, I'd like to join the church, they say, you've been baptized? Yes. Believers baptism? Yes. How? By immersion? Yes. By one of us? No. Okay, you can't join our church unless you're baptized by one of us. Because it's a big deal to them. All right? My, my understanding, they have taken this way out of context of what it meant. They've lost the significance in the minutia. All right? Now, there are some traditions where you are baptized by sprinkling instead of immersion. Now, I know I'm going to be a heretic on this. Do you think that would be a valid baptism? By sprinkling? No. Yes. I do. I don't think that. I'll talk about it in a minute. Yeah, I don't think that you have to be baptized at all. It's a choice you make. If you're born as a quadriplegic or some. There's some people that cannot be immersed. All right? Now, now you got, you got to hear the whole 30 minutes here before you go screaming through the church that I'm a heretic, you know, all right? Now, Let's go on the other side. If I were the pastor of a church and I had to choose the mode of baptism, what mode do you think I would choose? Immersion. I think it's a... I, I, I do. I, I, I would be an immersionist. I, I was baptized by immersion. I, I believe that's a good way to do it. I don't have any problem with that.
but I don't believe it is the only valid way you can be baptized in the Bible because the Bible doesn't say that. It, here's a question. Is there anywhere in the Bible where it says you have to be baptized by immersion only? No. no. What, do, what do you see as the pattern, though? Immersion, believer's baptism. That you can make a case for. It is a pattern. And what do we know about patterns? Are they binding? Just because the early church did it, do I have to do it the same way? No. No. All right, so we'll get, we'll get to this here in a minute. All right? But here's, here's, and here's why I say that. Because to me, and, and I, 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 I think this is where I, I have come on this concept, the major meaning behind baptism, although it means to dip or to immerse, the concept of dipping or immersing is to plunge something in so as to identify it with whatever you're plunging it into. And so I think the overriding concept behind baptism is this concept of identification, total identification. All right? And I think that's borne out in the use of baptism and the way in which it was used and the way in which it was understood. No, no, because in infant baptism, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm baptizing this child as a sign of the covenant. That child has exhibited no faith at all, all right? So in Catholicism, that's to remove original sin, and Presbyterianism is to make that child a member of the covenant community, much like circumcision was. But that, that baptism that the child has as a baby in Presbyterianism needs to be validated are confirmed by a decision for Christ at a later point. So it's not salvific. It only makes them a part of the covenant community. I don't believe in infant baptism. Why? Because babies can't exhibit faith. It's only believer's baptism we're talking about here. Not infant. Okay? Mm-hmm. Right. You're the only adults that were not <laughs> baptized as infants. All right. Yeah. Overwhelm? Yeah, if you go back to the Greek, if I had Dan bring in my big TVNT, which is about that thick, baptizo has about that much pages in it. It goes and searches the whole etymology of this word. It means to dip, to immerse, to overwhelm, to submerge under, to... It has those, those meanings when you're trying to define what baptism is. But the basic concept is to dip, immerse, completely submerge in something. It symbolizes being bored with pride. Mm -hmm. And when you come up out of the water, to live in life. Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Okay. All right, we're going to get there. Yeah, All right, what that means. Yeah. The die. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. To dip, immerse, submerge, overwhelm. It has all those nuances. All right. But I think the basic concept is an identification, a, a melting together of two things, an identification of things. Now, let's see how that, that works out. All right. In, a, in just a minute. There's a couple of false views on baptism. All right. One of them is that's necessary for salvation. Let's get rid of that right now. It is not necessary for salvation. How do you know that? Well, thief on the cross certainly wasn't baptized, and yet he was in the kingdom, was he not? All right. So it's not necessary. It's not necessary for salvation. Is it something that you should do as a believer? Yes. Well, yeah, it is. But it's not necessary for you to get to heaven. Okay, we got to... You know, if you, if you come to know the Lord and then you die before you get baptized, there are some places that say you're not in heaven. Look, that, the Bible doesn't understand that. All right, and we spend a lot of time trying to sort through that, all the different pros and cons, and we don't have time to do that. But just understand that baptism is not necessary for salvation. Why? Only faith is necessary for salvation. By faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not by anything you do, and that's the point. There's nothing you can do apart from belief in Christ to get you saved. Nothing. And if you make baptism part of that, then all of a sudden now you've got to do something. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, he didn't have to, yeah, he couldn't, it's kind of hard to jump down off the cross and get baptized to make sure you get into heaven. All right? And then some say it replaces, this is the Presbyterian viewpoint. R.C. Sproul would believe this and many of the Presbyterian people that it replaces circumcision as a sign of the covenant. Now, where do they get that? Pizza and beer. Yeah, I don't know where they get it. They don't know where they get it. Really, I mean, is there any, is there any indication anywhere in the scripture, anywhere, that that would be the case? No, it's not there. And by the way, what about women? It's kind of tough. Yeah. Circumc and by the way, uh, now, in the Old Covenant, was circumcision a sign of the covenant community of, of, of the Jews? Sure it was. It made you part of the covenant community. Did it automatically make you go to heaven? No. no. See, that's what the Pharisees believe. As long as you're circumcised, you're in. No, that's not what the meaning of it was. So the baptism, and I heard R.C. Sproul, and essentially I had a debate had a, there's a debate out there between R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur on infant baptism. And MacArthur asked him, so, well, you know, if infant baptism is so necessary, why, why, isn't, it, why isn't there nowhere in the New Testament it talks about this? And I, I forget what R.C. Sproul said. He said, well, the reason it's not in the New Testament is because everybody then just understood that that was what it was and there was no need to talk about it. And I'm sitting there thinking, I said, you know, if I would have said that in one of his classes, he would have slapped me and flunked me out of his class. <laughs> There's... What's his background? He, he's a philosopher, he, doctor of philosophy. Just a, oh, he's Presbyterian. Yeah. All right. Now, he's wrong on this, you know, but it has nothing to do with the sign of the covenant. So, what is it? All right. We'll sort this out here in the next 20 minutes. And I'll argue through, not argue, but present. Mm -hmm. Yeah, argue through. <laughs> what, what is the scriptural view on baptism? All believers are to be baptized. All believers. Where, where possible, you're to be baptized. What, when you're baptized, what is the significance of that? It's you publicly identifying with what? Christ. With Christ. Okay? It's a public affirmation before God, before others, that you are unashamedly identifying yourself as a Christian. You believe. All right? That's what the significance of it is. All right? Now, some people have tried to say that, look, and this is a common understanding, that it symbolizes the death of Christ so when you're buried with him, you rise with him to walk in newness of life. That's the Romans 6, where they get that. Um, where they say that's what it's talking about there. Water baptism. I believe Romans 6 is as dry a verse as there is. There's no water there. It's not talking about physical baptism. What kind of baptism is it talking about? Spiritual baptism. When I, when I become a believer, who am I identified with? I'm identified with Christ in his what? His death, his burial, his resurrection. All right? So when Christ died in a sense, what did I do? I died with him. When Christ was buried, I was buried with him. When Christ rose again, I rose again with him to walk in newness of life. Now, is water immersion baptism a, a picture of that? Well, yeah, you can make it a picture of that. All right? But was that what it was originally a picture of? No. no. All right. Now you say, okay, Schaefer, where's the hair, where, you know, where, where are we going on this? Well, let's think about this. When you look at, who was the first one, where, where do we find baptism first being practiced, used, whatever in the New Testament? John the, John the Baptist. All right. So when John the Baptist baptized people, what was he baptizing them for? Repentance of sins. Was he baptizing them to commemorate the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? <laughs> Did anybody know about it? No. 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 Say, well, you know, I heard somebody say, well, he was baptizing them in anticipation of that. Look, let me tell you something. God does not institute a ritual where you don't understand what it means. 
Christ said, I want you to do this, but I'm not going to tell you what it means to, uh, you know, a thousand years, another hundred years. No, it, it, there's no significance in doing something. if It's not like God said, I want you to do the Passover. What does that mean? Well, you'll find out about it in about a thousand years, but meantime, just go ahead and do this ritual. I mean, it's meaningless. To the, to the, it, it, it makes no meaning to the person. So when John was baptizing people in the Jordan River, by the way, he did it by what? Immersion, probably. And what was he baptizing them for? What was, the, what was the message that John was preaching? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right? So as a Jew, when you walked down the Jordan River, and you heard the preaching of John, and you walked out and had him baptizing you, what were you publicly affirming? I agree with John. I believe the message. I am repenting. I want to be ready for the Messiah. And by the way, that's how society of those days, that's how society understood the rite of baptism. You look at, um, you look at extra-biblical uses of baptism. Um, the Essene community, the Dead Sea Scroll people, down by the Dead Sea, if you wanted to be part of their community, you had to go through all kinds of stuff to get there. But the last thing you had to do was be baptized. And once you were baptized, you were officially recognized as a member of the Essene community. Until then, you were not officially a member. But once you were baptized, then that was a public affirmation, I'm all in. When you go over to Judaism, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to convert to Judaism, and you went through all of the training and all of that, the last thing you had to do as a, as a Gentile was to be baptized, at which point you were then officially a Jew. So understand what baptism was in those days. Baptism was a public affirmation of identification with a message or a group that you were going to join. You were making a public affirmation. I believe this. I'm joining this group. I'm all in. And when you're baptized, the significance of the baptism was not how did you do it. The significance of the baptism is what you were affirming. Make sense? So what is the significance of baptism? The way in which it's done? It's what you're saying. Is what you're saying. Now, is there a problem with seeing the death, burial, resurrection necessarily? No, I, I wouldn't go there. But I, I, I would say that's not what it's officially meaning. Now, let's, let's, let's explore this a little bit further. Who did, who did John baptize that shocked him? Jesus. Jesus. All right? So if baptism is to commemorate the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and he was baptized, what was he commemorating? And by the way, did he have to repent? No. No. So... The baptism, with the, so if he didn't have to repent, then why did he have John baptize him? As an example. What does that mean? As an example. I heard that. Well, you know, I, I heard some people say, well, the, it says here, to, um, Jesus told John, you need to baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what does that mean? To fulfill all righteousness. They say, well, he was being baptized in this example that we should be baptized. Well, I don't see that there. But if you understand baptism as being identification, what was Christ doing? Validating what? He was validating John the Baptist's message of what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because immediately, where did Christ go and start preaching? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ's baptism, and this is what I believe, Christ's baptism was the official linkage between the message of John and the message of Christ to show that they were one and the same message. It wasn't John was preaching one thing and Christ preached something else. It was that they linked them together. Now, if Christ had not been baptized, what would the early church or what would the disciples have tried to do? Well, John the Baptist, he was preaching one thing, but we believe something else. Christ was linking both of them together. And when Christ went down and was baptized by John... Not only was he affirming the ministry of John the Baptist, not only was he affirming what John the Baptist was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, 
Christ was linking his ministry with that of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner. Christ was the fulfillment. And we see this stamp of the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's linking all of this together. Does that make sense? Because yeah. Yeah. one of the big bugaboos that I have with some views on baptism is why was Christ baptized? And the best answer is, well, he was sort of baptized as our example. What, what does that mean? As our example. That, does, that doesn't mean anything. But I think if you look at it as, as baptism as a public affirmation of identification with something, oh, and all, it makes sense now. So when I am baptized before the church, what am I publicly affirming? I believe the gospel. I believe the message. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he was buried for my sins. I believe he rose again for my sins. And I want to make a public affirmation to the whole world that I'm all in. And I think that's what Christ meant when he said, go into all the world and make disciples. And how do you make a disciple? Well, you teach them to observe all things, and then you baptize them. Well, what does that mean? You just dunk them in water? Baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It just means you just dunk them in water? Is that all it means? No. What was the significance in the early church? When you were baptized, what were you doing? I'm part of it. I'm all in. And you identify them with the church, with Christ. And what is spirit baptism? What does this Holy Spirit do? When I come to know the Lord, the Bible says, I am baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. What does that mean? I am sealed. I am taken. I am identified with the body of Christ in some way. I'm identified with the body of Christ. I'm not dunked into the body of Christ. I am identified with the body of Christ. And then when Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 10 how all the Israelites were baptized into Moses, what does that mean? He baptized every one of them in the Red Sea. What were they, what was the Israelite, what were they identified with? Moses. There's an identification. I, I think that's the overarching concept behind this thing of baptism. It is identification. When I am baptized, I'm identifying myself with the church, the body of Christ. I'm publicly affirming that I believe the gospel, that I believe the message of the gospel, that I believe Christ died for my sins. He was buried. He rose again. That is the significance of it. It's not as important as to how that is done, but what I am affirming. You follow? So that's why I would say if you are sprinkled, and in the context of your sprinkling, there's a knowledge and an understanding that you are identifying yourself with the body of Christ. You're making a public profession of your faith in Christ. You're identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. I'm not going to get hung up on whether you're sprinkled or not. Now, if I'm the pastor of a church, I would do immersion because I think that's the best. I mean, that's what John did. That's a pattern. But it's not law. It's not a prescription. There's a difference there. Now, is this the same as being born again? No. No. Baptism is a public proclamation. Uh, yeah, I don't know how many of you have been here long enough to hear about Nicanor Tamung, one of our missionaries. Remember him? He's from Nepal, I think it is. And he was here and he was talking about you know, ministry in Nepal. He said, you know, Nepal, which is, by the way, I think it's the only official Buddhist nation where it's written into the Constitution. Um, you can be a Christian. Nobody cares. Just don't get baptized. Because now all of a sudden you've made a break. That's the significance of baptism. See, in those days, in, in, in the early, you know, I could walk down to the, I could walk down to the Jordan River. I could hear the Apostle John, or yeah, Apostle John. I could hear John the Baptist preach. I could say, you know, I agree with him. I, I agree with that. Walk away. Nobody cared, right? Didn't matter. When I went down on the water and had him baptize me, what am I publicly affirming? I am really all in on this. I'm identifying myself with this message. I am in. So what does baptism do? What is, the, what is the ordinance of baptism? The ordinance of baptism is a public affirmation by the individual that I believe in the gospel, I believe in salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. I want to publicly affirm my belief in that and I want to join this church. I want to identify myself with that message, identify myself with the body of Christ, and I want everybody to know it. That's the significance of baptism.
What's the significance of communion? Commemoration. What's the significance of baptism? Identification. And I th- it best answers all the uses of baptism. What is spirit baptism? I'm, identif- I'm being identified with the body of Christ. Who's doing the identification? The Holy Spirit. He takes me and he places me into the body of Christ in a unique way. And gifts me. It explains why Christ was baptized by John the Baptist. What? Not for forgiveness of sins. Not merely as an example. But he was linking his ministry and John the Baptist's ministry together. He was basically affirming publicly to everybody. I believe the message of John the Baptist. That's what he was saying, right? Christ was saying, I am affirming publicly before everybody the message that John preached is an accurate message. Because had he not been baptized, there could always be somebody who comes along and say, well, John the Baptist somehow fouled up the message a little bit because Christ really, you know, Christ had to fix all the problems that he had. No, Christ was identifying and, and really exonerating the message of John the Baptist, affirming it by him being baptized by John the Baptist. And Christ and his disciples baptized people for what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're affirming the message of Christ. Affirming the message. When the disciples baptize. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, if you understand it that way, then by definition, who can be baptized? Well, you can't have babies baptized right, because they can't affirm anything, can they? And an unbeliever who's baptized, if they don't believe in the death of burial and resurrection of Christ, they're just going through the motions. But there's nothing, there's no real significance to that. And really, what is, the message, what, is, what is the message of making a disciple to us? The only verb in Matthew 28 is to make a disciple. That's the verb. That's the action. How do you make a disciple? You teach, you baptize, and you go. You got to go take the message. You teach them to observe all things. You baptize them by making them a part of the body of Christ in the sense of identifying with a local church and making them part of the community of believers so that they can go reproduce themselves. All right? So that's the significance of baptism. All right? Now, what some have said is that, well, it means these, it can mean these things. The effusionist. That, that's a good new word for you, the effusionist. It represents the coming of the Holy Spirit. Well, where do they get that? Well, just Christ's baptism, the Holy Spirit sort of came. So they say, well, uh, that's what it's referring to. No, I don't think that refers to... The view of the immersionist represents identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's it. That's the immersionist. You're, you're just commemorating Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. The problem is, what did it mean before he died and was buried and rose again? Well, they were looking forward to it. John the Baptist understood that's what it was going to happen. No, he didn't. I just, read, I just read an article by a Baptist guy in Sword of the Lord. He was talking about the Sermon on the Mount. In his first two paragraphs, he said, you've got to understand the Sermon on the Mount is written to people who have believed in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they were saved. And I'm thinking, he hadn't died yet. The Sermon on the Mount is not written to believers. He's preaching to a crowd. Well, all of them were believers. No, they weren't. If they were believers, why did he say you've got to enter at the straight gate? For white is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. You're telling me a believer can go on that gate, that road? You get all fouled up on this. It's, it's not that. We've made it that, but I don't think it's only that. I like the idea, I created this, so I can create a word if I want to once in a while. Identificationist, right? He's identificationist. Yeah. Okay. I'm, identifi- I'm identifying publicly with a message, with a movement. That's how, that's how that society understood baptism. And the church took this, this, this societal understanding of baptism and brought it in the church, and when you are baptized, you are identifying with the gospel message, with the church, public affirmation, I'm all in, I'm making a break with my old life, I am now going to be part of a new community. That's what you are identifying with. And that best explains baptism. Now, I, I slammed through that. But, does it make sense? Yeah. Am I still a heretic? 
some people yeah. believe that yeah. Some people believe that they can be baptized and still be saved, and I explained to somebody it's not that. Mm -hmm. You can't you you can't you can't be baptized and think that you're going to go to heaven. You have to make faith a, first. Uh, first, yeah. You have to yeah. Uh, profess Christ as your savior. And it, and yeah. And baptism, it's 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 just a, a public affirmation. You're publicly affirming right that. So identify with Christ. All right. Well, we're done here. I got four seconds left. Okay. Oh, time that pretty well, don't I? Oh, I'm sorry, did you? It's too, not enough time to say what's bothering me, so I was trying to look it up to see, okay. and I didn't have a chance. Did John say, or did he not say, maybe I'm confusing it, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He did. So, he had a general idea yeah. that the Messiah was going to take away the sins of the world. How the Messiah was going to do that, he didn't know. Yeah. That's the confusion. Uh -huh. Okay? Um, yeah, that's the confusion. Because remember when Christ was, uh, when he was in prison, Christ was doing the miracles, John the Baptist sent his messengers to Christ saying, are you the one that should come or should we look for another? Because he was confused. He said, wait a minute, you know, the kingdom is here. I mean, why aren't you, where's the white horse? Where's the army? Where's the, because that's what John the Baptist was looking for. He didn't, they didn't understand the mechan the particulars. They understood the generalities, but not the particulars. So, all right. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this day, and thank you for this discussion we've had. And pray that you help us to ponder it. And uh, thank you for your Son who gave His life to redeem us from all the curse of the cross. Thank you so much for a gorgeous day and bring us back safely next week in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Eschatology next week. Okay.